Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. My name is Travis Dow. Now before we talk about Germans as Romans, because part of Germania was colonized by Rome and Rome definitely had a huge influence on the development of Germany and Germans, but Rome never conquered all of the Germanic lands and Germans today don't speak a Romance language. And there's a reason that for centuries, Rome used the Rhine as a border and never really a river further east, at least not as permanently. Basically, I want to go over the biggest Roman defeat of all time. Because the biggest defeat of all time for the Romans was served to them by those rowdy, barbaric Germans. This is also one of those battles where you can say, this is one of the most important battles of history because it stopped the Romans from going after the rest of Germania until it was too late. And the Germanic tribes that ended up the victor were led by an interesting fellow too. In fact, the Germans were led by a Roman citizen, Arminius, who was born somewhere in around 18 or 17 BC, was son of the Cheruscan chief Segemerus, or in German Segemer. And he was even trained as a Roman military commander. He had lived in Rome as a hostage in his youth, where he had received a military education and obtained Roman citizenship, and even kind of held the status of an equestrian, which is basically, you know, some lower nobility, before eventually returning to Germania. Now, taking sons of chiefs as captives sometimes backfires. For instance, see Vlad the Impaler. Now, Arminius isn't nearly as cool in German. He's often known as Hermann. Basically, Romans were defeated by Hermann the German. Dan, Dan Carlin would never say that. What am I doing? Anyway, the battle that he's famous for is none other than the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. In German, it's even known as like the Hermann's Battle, Hermannschlacht, or Varusschlacht. Um, in Latin, it was sometimes known as the Cladis Variana, like the Varian Disaster. And anyways, all of those words are referring to the, the battle that took place in Teutoburg Forest in 9 CE. A huge alliance of Germanic tribes led by Arminius ambushed and decisively destroyed three Roman legions and their auxiliaries, who was led by Publius Quinctilius Varus. So that hence the Varusschlacht or Varian disaster, Varian battle. Now remember, Arminius was also technically a Roman citizen and had also received Roman military education. And this basically is what allowed him to have the insight to be able to ambush and destroy three legions. On Rome's sides, Publius Varus was a noble of the patrician family and also had some ties or was related to the imperial family. He himself was an experienced administrative official and three years before the battle in 6 CE was assigned 
take over and bring order to the new province of Germania. Now, earlier that year, Elegatus and Consul led a massive army of 13 legions and their entourage, totaling somewhere around 100,000 men. They had this massive offensive operation against Marobodus, who was king of the Marcomanni, who, which were a tribe of the Suebi that we've talked about before. And the Marcomanni then, after you know some of those battles in 9 BC, kind of fled into the territory of the Boi, and then they kind of had a huge, well, or yeah, I mean, a, a really big alliance, actually, of some Germanic tribes and some Celtic tribes just kind of all allied together. And 4 CE, so about five years before the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, Tiberius entered Germania and was generally just kind of kicking ass. But then a revolt broke out in the Balkans, and so he had to go send eight legions to crush it. So all told, nearly half of all Roman legions in existence were sent to the Balkans to end that revolt. And that whole story is a great... Um, you know, history of Rome story because it's it's Tiberius under Emperor Augustus and it's one of the most crucial, um, you know, putting down the revolts in the history of the Roman Empire. But anyways, this is the background, which is the reason why Varos only had three legions instead of something more like, uh, you know, ten. Now, Varos himself also kind of had a reputation of um, well, basically being pretty ruthless because even beyond the Roman Empire, I mean, in, in Germania, they were fully well aware of who he was. Uh, he had a habit of crucifying insurgents. So he was definitely feared by the people. But on the Roman side, like let's say the Roman Senate, he was also very respected. And for those that want to know, he was in command of the 17th, 18th, and 19th legions. And in the previous battles, a good 20 years, let's say, before the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, Arminius and Flavus were sent to Rome as tribute by their father, Sigameros, who I mentioned earlier, Sigameros the Conqueror, if you will. And he was basically chieftain of one of the noble houses of the tribe of the Cherushi. So Arminius kind of grew up in Rome, or at least spent some, some significant amount of time as a hostage uh, growing up in Rome. And I mentioned before, so he had the military training of a Roman. He was the rank of an equestrian. But while he was in Rome, his father, Sigamaros, was declared a coward by the other Germanic chieftains because he had kind of cooperated with the Romans and submitted to rule and, you know, given his son as a hostage, etc. And all of this was kind of deemed to be punishable by death under Germanic law. And this again led to a bunch of, let's call it internal strife between the Germanic tribes. Um, you know, kind of following up uh, until about 5 CE. And Arminius is this, at this point actually sent from Rome back to Germania and becomes Varos's advisor. But Arminius is not actually loyal to Rome despite his, you know, growing up there. He's in secret forged a bunch of alliances with Germanic tribes, including the Cherushi, the Marsi, Chati, Bukderi, I'm probably butchering all these names, but, um, you know, more than that, who basically all the remaining elements of the Suebi that we, we talked about last time, um, because, you know, this the same Suebi that were defeated by Caesar. And this was definitely not all of the Germanic tribes. Not to give you the idea that this was a German alliance or anything like that. This was maybe a tenth of all the uh, Germanic peoples at the time. Um, it, that's really hard to say. But, you know, Varus was 
definitely seen as a dictator, a tyrant in this part of the world for, you know, because he was crucifying insurgents and that kind of thing. So it wasn't that hard for Arminius, who was the advisor to Varos and, you know, knew how the Romans ticked, let's say, to unite the Germanic tribes, in secret even. And um, because they all had that one thing in common, they all hated the Romans. Now basically what the plan was, was it boiled down to this. While Varos was away at the Weser River, basically his winter headquarters near the Rhine, he received reports of a local rebellion. And those reports were in fact somehow fabricated by Arminius. And according to these reports, the rebellion was kind of in an area that wasn't really that familiar to Romans, which is, you know, a nice coincidence for the Germans. Um, so Varos decided to quell the uprising immediately and, and headed off into this, you know, strange new direction that they didn't really know that well. Arminius was a, w went right with them and, of course, kind of led them into an ambush. Now, sources tell us that Varos actually had warning the night before the Romans were defeated or before they departed on their to quell the uprising and even told that he should arrest Arminius, you know, among some of the other Germanic leaders. But Varos kind of thought this was just some sort of personal feud be between somebody and Arminius, and so it just kind of ignored all, you know, ignored the warning basically. And then Arminius left under the pretext of getting Germanic forces to support the Romans. But as soon as he left, he instantly, you know, joined the Germanic troops and started raiding the surrounding Roman garrisons. And before we get to the battle itself, uh, let's kind of go over some other aspects of the background of the battle, which is what's been found or what's been archaeologically shown because um, so far I've just been talking about sources from the Romans themselves and but we you know there has been possibly the battlefield found um, not everybody agrees that it's that battlefield but there's a, an archaeological find near Kalkrise Hill in Osnabrück which is in Lower Saxony and on the basis of Roman accounts, the Romans were marching northwest in from what is now basically the city of Detmold. So passing east of Osnabrück after camping in the area prior to the attack. And another interesting factor in all of these battles is that supposedly, according to the sources, there was a violent storm and a lot of rain throughout, you know, all of the, all of these events. And it's here in this place where this archaeological found was, you know, supposedly it's the same place. Um, because the Romans were kind of marching through mud and in unfamiliar terrain, they started to really become stretched out some 15 to 20 kilometers. And it was in this place where the Germans attacked them with, you know, light swords, large lances, and narrow-bladed short spears called fremae. Now, remember, Arminius understood the Romans' tactics. He knew what was going to happen, what they would try. So he was able to counteract all the Roman tactics, you know, what they were going to do. This wasn't a slaughter yet. The Romans were able to kind of um, camp overnight and then try to break out into the open tomorrow. This is sort of near Vien Hills, near the modern town of Ostakapeln. The Romans suffered heavy losses during this breakout and then again suffered heavy losses during an attempt to march through another forested area. All this time, the rains never letting up. Now, the rains are important because it, it prevented them from using their bows because of the sinew strings were kind of slack when wet. And then, of course, you have to imagine that if their shields got waterlogged, 
then those also become much, much heavier and, and you know, therefore pretty useless, actually. The Romans then resorted to a night march to escape, but wandered right into another trap Arminius had set. They were basically trapped between the woods and this swampland at the edge of a great bog. And then on one side of the road, there was even a wall had been built. The Germanic tribesmen even had cover to attack the Romans from. The Romans tried to storm the wall, but failed. The second-in-command rode off, trying to flee on, on horseback with the cavalry, but they were also overtaken by Germanic cavalry and all slaughtered, according to Roman sources. Varus committed suicide. Another, another commander shamefully surrendered and then committed suicide, while another commander heroically died leading his doomed troops. Roman casualties are estimated to be around 15,000 to 20,000. Many of the officers are, according to the sources, or maybe just according to legend, I don't know, said to have uh, all committed, like fallen on their own swords, committed suicide in the approved manner. And then we have Tacitus that chimes in on all of this, saying that the officers were sacrificed by Germanic tribesmen as part of their kind of, you know, native religious ceremonies and had them cooked in pots and their bones used for rituals. I don't know how credible Tacitus is. Some were enslaved. Some of the soldiers were enslaved. Some were ransomed back if they, you know, if they were worth anything. And the, the archaeological evidence is kind of tricky because the Roman sources all say that just the Romans were basically, you know, it was a one-sided loss. Basically, just Romans were slaughtered. Not that many Germans died. But, um, and, and the archaeological evidence would back that up. There was only, in fact, out of 6,000 pieces, there was only like one single Germanic item found, which was part of a spur. But that's not really saying much because... There was so much trade between the the Germans on the border and the Romans that the Germanic tribes actually might have had Roman uniforms and Roman weapons and swords. And, you know, therefore, archaeologically, you know, it looks like every, everybody looks Roman, whether they were Germanic or not, which I think that's that's a really important thing to note. Things that would have been specifically Germanic um, might have not lasted, like the cloth and the leather and that sort of thing. Anything metal would have been Roman, whether it was a German wearing them or not. So it looks like the archaeological found, finds, you know, back up the Roman sources saying that it was a Roman slaughter, um, but it's not so clear cut. You know, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. It's not so I wouldn't read too much into the evidence. In fact, there's even, you know, several thousand of the Germanic soldiers were deserters from the Roman side wearing complete Roman armor. Um, so again, you know, those would just appear as Roman casualties in an archaeological dig, but aren't necessarily, so hard to say. What's also interesting is the story of the rediscovery of the Teutoburg Forest, because for like 2,000 years, people did not know where the battlefields were, and it's still not exactly for certain, but uh, now good, you know, good educated guesses have been made, there's archaeological finds, and, you know, people have you know, thrown their hats in, in one ring or another. But starting in the 19th century, people were looking for it. And, you know, based off Tacitus's annals, the area is not far from the land between the upper reaches of Lippe and Ems rivers in, in Westphalia. And so in the 19th century, there was, of course, many, many theories of which sites it could be. But one of those theories kind of won out in the 19th century. 
and around Bielefeld, there was an area renamed the Teutoburg Forest. And another interesting story from the rediscovery is that uh, just not that long ago, in the you know late 20th century, there was a British amateur archaeologist, Major Tony Clun, who was just kind of looking around Kalkriza Hill with a metal detector, basically just trying to find some, you know, the odd Roman coin is, is a quote, you know, basically. The reason that, you know, there were so many theories and the reason, especially 19th century when nationalism was coming around, was that this was such an important battle. And there's, there's also, there's even like an, a famous or, you know, a really interesting Alamo type story of another fort, of one of a Roman forts um, that's most likely located near today's Haltan am See, which fended off the Germanic tribes for several weeks, maybe even months, until, you know, they just started, you know, their, their situation kind of became untenable, let's say. But they eventually broke through the Germanic siege and, you know, were able to reach the Rhine. And not everybody agrees on where, where the Romans came from. Some believe that they approached Kalkrise from due east from Minden, which is in nor North Rhine-Westphalia, and not from the south, like as in from Detmold, like I said earlier. And also, for example, Peter Opitz argues for a site in Paderborn. So not everyone agrees that the Teutoburg Forest that we call Teutoburg Forest today is, is really uh, even anywhere near there or where the, Ro where the Romans came from and what direction. So it's not all agreed on, but um, uh, at least, you know, there's, there's some theories now, I guess. And again, the reason why this is so important is that the Roman army kind of, I mean, that this was a huge embarrassment for them, you know, not to mention a huge defeat in terms of numbers, but they never again attempted to really conquer Germanian territory east of the Rhine River in that way and settle it that, that permanently. So this German victory had far-reaching effects because, you know, then obviously this also gave the Germans enough independence to then, um, you know, later again attack the crumbling Roman Empire centuries later. But basically, you know, Arminius's victory is also Rome's greatest defeat, like I've said. And the news was so bad to Emperor Augustus that according to one Roman historian, when, Ar when Augustus was told the news, he was so shaken that he stood butting his head against the walls of his palace. And he repeatedly shouting, you know, famously, Quintili vare legiones rede. Quintilius varos, give me back my legions. And then kind of the, the, the legion numbers, 17 and 19, were sort of seen as like jinxed. They weren't used again by the Romans, ever. Now 18 was rebuilt under Nero, but then disbanded again under Vespasian. So it did kind of live again for a very short time. But all three of those legions were just, you know, considered bad luck after that. And that's actually pretty unique in Roman history. So, I mean, even the Romans saw this as um, uniquely historically significant, you know, that that created a Roman border that was not really natural. I mean, the Rhine River is a natural barrier, but uh, in other senses, the, the Romans just went until they either hit desert or, you know, hit ocean or went as far as they could. And this was one of them where they just, they, they couldn't actually beat the people that were there. Eh, sort of. At least they didn't, didn't, at least they didn't try too hard after that. And Arminius sent Varus's severed head to Marobodus, king of the Marcomanni, who was the other most powerful Germanic ruler. He kind of wanted an alliance, but um, 
the king of Marcomanni declined and, in fact, sent the head on to the Romans for a burial. But obviously, uh, for those that kind of know the history of Rome or the history of Germany, um, the Germans did end up, you know, being at least kind of colonized and, and had a huge influence on the Romans, like I've said. But, you know, if it wasn't for Teutoburg Forest, it would have been much greater. But there still was a huge Roman influence. And um, first of all, there was a Roman retaliation because uh, this was... It was a huge insult to, you know, lose the legion standards, you know, from a legion and, uh, you know, to, to lose a legion completely like this. And Romans obviously wouldn't stand for this. And in fact, Germanicus's campaigns was, you know, partially really because of re retaliation. And this happened, you know, just as early as five years later. So Arminius was still, a still around, still fighting. And the Romans did what they did best, which was conquer territory. So they're not stupid. They didn't, um, you know, they obviously learned from all of this and they immediately started a so slow and systematic kind of, you know, process of reconquering this country. And so in 14 CE, just after Augustus's death, then we have his stepson Tiberius. And then we have the raid of the emperor's nephew, Germanicus. He attacked the Marsi, the Bructeri, Tubanti, Lucy Petty, all defeated with heavy losses. Eventually, they captured Arminius's wife, even. The army went back to the site of the first battle, which, according to Tacitus, they found heaps of bleached bones and severed skulls nailed to trees, which they then buried. And then fast forward another 15 years, and we have another incursion by the Romans, where they possibly even recovered one of the, the standards and, and placed it in the Temple of Mars, which you can still see the ruins today in, in Rome. And another interesting legend from here is that five years after this, so now we're talking like 25 years uh, or longer, 35, 40, 40 years after the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, there was a band of Chatti that invaded Roman territory. And then under retaliation, the, they were slaughtered and defeated and the, and the Romans you know, were able to uh, raid some of the Germanic villages. And then they got so deep into Germanic territory that they actually liberated some of the Germa uh, some of the Roman prisoners that had been held prisoner, according to legend or according to the story, for 40 years from the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. That would be something like someone freeing prisoners of war from Vietnam, I guess, somewhere in there. Uh, today, I mean, that's how long they would have been held prisoner, so I'm not... I don't know if that's true or not, but that that's definitely one of the um, stories from Tacitus, you know, which, again, I don't know how much I trust Tacitus. I probably don't trust him as much as I could, as far as I could throw him. But we definitely do see that this was huge, that that's not undeniable. Both the um, Germans or Germanic tribes and Romans knew that this defeat was huge and the retaliation took, you know, decades Um to slowly get that territory back. And I don't think they ever did get the territory back all the way. And because of its, its, of its perceived importance, um, you know, then later, this battle has been looked at again and again throughout time and seen in different light. Like, especially in the 19th century, it came back, um, back into vogue because of the kind of mythology of the whole Germanic, of uh, well, German nationalism in the 19th century and, and the birth of German nationalism where, again, this was seen as, you know, we defeated the greatest empire ever, 
and you know Germans had it in them back then and you know that that sort of thing so that kind of came back the the story became popular again but modern historians have kind of shed some doubt on the importance of the battle because um you know just the Rhine is naturally a much better border anyways economically so there's 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 no river that if you go further west you have to go much further west before you get to another you know economically uh, interesting river like the Rhine and and really no river tops the Rhine as far as uh, you know econo- economically as a north south uh, border um, so historians kind of doubt overall like the you know why would Romans really even care why would they want to go there um, but Romans did try to invade and at least once or twice failed so um, th- so it is interesting so you know they they obviously did. Uh, whether it was ec- economically feasible or not, Romans went many places just because they could, you know, just because it was out there to conquer. So I'm not sure that's a great argument, but but people have, you know, shown doubt, like, well, maybe it wasn't as important as they said, you know, obviously. But the, the Romans did definitely pacify the area even much further to the east and then basically set up, you know, they had client kings going, Germanic client kings going all the way down to the Danube. So it was a very secure border from the Rhine and then their their Germanic allies that, you know, weren't going to attack the Roman Empire and was therefore a safe border, kind of a buffer, like many, many buffer states, little tribal kingdoms that were all client kings. And then you had the Danube, which is another huge river. And of course, you can, you know, the Teutoburg Forest, these battles have been reenacted in movies and um, video games even, like you can, in 1995... 1983, there was the Hermannschlacht, the Hermann battle, which is, I guess, very well done. Um, but it's actually done in Latin with German subtitles, or they're speaking German, you know. So an English artist, Tony Cragg, even had a brief role as playing Augustus himself. And you can play in Teutoburg Forest in the game Rome Total War and Rome 2 Total War. So you could, you know, kind of reenact that battle in video game format. And even... Uh, there's a German cartoon that I remember from my childhood that was kind of silly and came on between commercials sometimes, but it was Die Sendung mit der Maus, like the the show with the mouse. And they actually did a, I mean, it was a children's TV show with cartoons and all that. Um, and, and they actually did a reenactment using Playmobil toys um, to reenact the Roman legions. And even the, the name Arminius itself, so now it's kind of known as Hermann, maybe, but it, it was, it really was, the German name was, or the Germanic name was Armin, not Hermann. So, um, and there's another interesting story because people misattribute that mistranslation to Martin Luther, although he probably had nothing to do with it. Um, and, and, but anyways, Hermann, Hermann the German, uh, became a symbol of pan-Germanism, of this idea that the Russians took very literally, um, and they just you know wanted all these Germ- German-speaking peoples to be one nation in the 19th century, and you know that's that's what pan-Germanism is, and there was there was ideas, um, you know, because uh, there was hundreds of Germanic states. I'm not sure as, if everybody's aware of that, but there was hundreds, almost 1,100 at the at at one point of Germanic states, independent fiefdoms and kingdoms and principalities. Uh, but but hundreds of states with different currencies and me- standards of measurement and all that stuff, and uh, 
many people had the idea of first like an economic thing like the EU and, and you know, this pan-Germanism and uh, having countries like Austria and Prussia and all these other states, Bavaria, being one country, you know, one. And this came up in the 19th century when, when Prussia was out conquering Germanic states to make one nation. And this obviously came up again in World War One and it came up again in World War II. Um, so and each time with a different spin, kind of each time a little bit worse than the last. Uh, so definitely Teutoburg Forest played into the mythology of every time uh, this pan-Germanism came up. So, but in the, um, yeah, I mean, like in the 19th century, it would come up against, because of this anti-Napoleonic sentiment. So people would hearken back to the, the Teutoburg Forest when they defeated the invaders from the West, because they would have loved to do that now when Napoleon was invading in the in the 19th century. And then, of course, it became important again in, in the, you know, the 1870s after the Franco-Prussian War, again, also because of France. And, you know, this time the Germans won and it was, again, decisive over France. So it was, again, reminding of, you know, this Romance language, France, of or this Romance country, uh, or another nationalistic reminder. And because of that wave of nationalism, there is actually a Hermann's Denkmal, a monument in Hermann Heights in New Ulm in Minnesota. And there's this, you know, the Sons of Hermann, a support organization for to German immigrants to the United States. And Hermann, Missouri is named after him, or at least they, they claim to be named after him. So even in the States, like the German-American community, uh, you know, grasps onto the idea and even use the name of, you know, Arminius or Hermann. And obviously that's really uh, slackened a little bit after World War II because uh, the Nazis obviously also grabbed onto this idea like never before, in fact. And uh, so there's a lot of monuments to this in the 30s and 40s, which you could go still see today. And so, you know, the I'd say the German-American communities have kind of backed off a little bit since then. And even, you know, there was the... If you think about it, it was the 2000 year anniversary in 2009, and yet, have you did, did anybody really see any, say anything about that, or you know, did you hear much about that? Because it was it was really kind of not that big of a deal uh, nationally, publicly in Germany, and <laughs> that's not on accident. I mean, that's you know they, yeah, because it's been used so many times in the past negatively. Um, that is, it's kind of been under undermined a little bit now. Nowadays, the only time you really see German nationalism is when you have the World Cup in soccer and you see all the German flags coming out. That's it, really. Not not in the 2,000-year uh, anniversary of the Teutoburg Forest. But anyway, so next time uh, we'll look at definitely the, the romanization of Germans and what that looked like, like what the blend of Germanic tribes that now had definitely had a, German, a Roman, heavily Roman influence using Roman currency, wearing Roman clothes sometimes, um, but all kinds of uh, Roman influence in the arts and that sort of thing. And we'll look at that next time. And then we'll probably just jump ahead and go to the end of the Roman Empire and all the Germanic and Gothic invasions and start to break, break down some of the, the Germanic tribes that ended up splitting into countries. Um, so that's, that's where this mini-series is going. And remember to go check out the... There's a new collage episode by the History Podcasters Network. And the History of Alchemy will be there with myself and Pete Coleman and Bohemican. And uh, so go... 
take that take a look at that oh, and the secret cabinet obviously so there's it's end of an era is the collage at historypodcasters.com and otherwise thank you very much for listening and thanks a lot to those that gave me a good review or a five-star rating on itunes thanks a lot hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.